Amen. I do appreciate those that have stood in and whenever I've had to travel and continue to uh, pray for Miss B. She's still recovering from uh, the extensive surgery that she had, making progress. And uh, my mom, thank you. Many of you asked on the way in this morning, is improving. And she's actually started this week trying to get outside and walk a little bit up and down the street in front of their house to just try to rebuild some of her stamina and get some wind back. And uh, she, those of you that are newer and aren't aware, she had quadruple bypass surgery that was somewhat unexpected just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then in prayer for my stepfather, he's having a heart cath on Tuesday. Uh, I'm not sure the time just yet that he was essentially told to pack a, pack a bag because he's either going to get fixed with stents or he's going to be taking an ambulance ride like my mom did down to the same hospital for the same surgery. Uh, and so we'll have two recovering from the same thing at the same time. And so it's a, it's a heavy burden for my sister that lives there nearby. Uh, and so I'm just going to be in prayer for them. Uh, and it, and we'll, I'm kind of on standby to see what I'm going to have to do uh, as far as whether, if they can fix it with stents, I won't have to go and help. But if they can't, my mom can't drive yet. She can't even get herself back and forth to the hospital and her appointments. And so I have to go back and help just for a few days. And so I do appreciate your prayers and do appreciate your patience uh, with us tending to older family members that need our help. And so uh, thank you for that. If you got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, Matthew chapter number 5 will continue to be here for some time. We'll probably take a week, uh, a, a break from this series at Christmas week for sure, and maybe the week after or before leading into it, and then we'll come right back to it. Uh, and so there will be some schedule things that will be coming up over the holiday season. We'll address those at the end of the service. And uh, make them more clear as the dates approach. The primary thing to remember right now is that our midweek service on Thanksgiving week will be on Tuesday rather than Wednesday. Uh, and so, but we'll look forward to a good service there. Matthew chapter number five, our focus this morning will be on verse number six, but we'll look here at the Beatitudes entirety from verses one to 12 as we read the text and establish context. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into, the mount, into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. As we start this morning, I'm going to speak on this thought, yearning. For righteousness. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We thank you again for the time to be together. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we look at the times in which we live, the times of persecution for Christians is real and coming. Just in the last week or so, there was a missionary in Baghdad 
that graduated from Crown College in Knoxville, Tennessee, who was executed by an Iranian group. His wife and children are they're making arrangements to get them home to the States. And I never met him, but he's someone that certainly we would, is the type of missionary that we would have in and consider for support. Uh, and so, you know, we don't see that much here in the States yet, but uh, the rhetoric against Christians is going to continue to escalate. And as we stand for the truths of the Bible, especially on moral issues and uh, on, on the salvation and, and realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior and our God, uh, then that's going to increase as the, la as the last days continue to approach. And so when we consider that this morning, he's again, Jesus, in the Beatitudes here, starting the Sermon on the Mount, which encompasses chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel here. Uh, he's laying out the basis and the foundation for his earthly ministry. So Jesus is early in ministry. He's already uh, doing things and preaching in such a way and teaching in such a way that it's captivated the attention of the surrounding countryside. And as he sits down here and the crowd gathers, he begins to just lay out, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. This is what I'm going to do. These are the principles that I'm going to instill in my people, my followers that are going to establish my kingdom. Now they were looking for that kingdom to be established right then and there. Uh, we understand that God is yet to establish that kingdom on the earth, but he will, uh, at the end of a seven-year period of tribulation, come back and actually rule on the earth for a thousand years before uh, final judgment is, is comes and, uh, and a new heaven and new earth are created for eternity. And so as he lays out here this groundwork, I'm going to take just a few minutes and catch us up and get our mind back on this uh, since we missed it last week. We're examining uh, this this morning, the fourth beatitude, and remember that these are attitudes. These are foundational attitudes that should permeate the life of a Christian. It should define our thinking. It should become second nature to our to us and how we function and operate and interact. Uh, with the, the world around us and with one another. We looked at the beginning of the, the thought of being poor in spirit. Uh, and he, he, he stated there, blessed are they, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this kingdom that I'm describing to you, the ones that are, it's going to be open to, that are going to partake of it, that are going to benefit from it are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm supposed to go around uh, with a sad face, feeling dejected and defeated? Not at all. What it means is that I come to a I've come to a place in my life where I recognize that I have a need for God. You know, you really can't help anybody until they understand they have a need. A doctor, a medical doctor, can't help someone until they understand that they have a need and they're willing to actually listen and do what's necessary for their healing and for their recovery. Uh, it's the same in almost every avenue of life. If I don't understand my need, I'm never going to benefit or gain what Christ has made available to me. Now listen, my friends, this morning, we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his saving grace. We need grace to live. We need grace to serve. We need the spirit of God working in us to do in us and create in us something more than what we are. 
but on our own, we're nothing. We're in trouble. We are dejected. We will fail. But with Christ, all things are possible. Uh, and so do I this morning understand that I have a need for God. And I, and I don't, and I think what we'll see this morning in our yearning for God and our seeking after Him and His righteousness is this, is this fact that it's more than just acknowledging with the mouth, but it's actually understanding that I have a need for Him that makes me desperate enough to do something about it. It's one thing to understand there's something that I need or need to do or need to obtain. It's another thing altogether to be willing to actually take the steps that are necessary to gain it or to achieve it or to become it. Uh, am I willing to pay that price? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that understand that I need God. That I need what God has for me. That I need this kingdom of God that he wants to establish. Then we saw next that he said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, what is he talking about here? He's not talking about, again, a perpetual state of mourning. Like we would grieve the, the death of a loved one. It's more an idea of I'm, uh, I'm broken. And by the way, this morning, whether you realize it or not, you're broken. Whether I realize it or not, I'm broken. There's something about recognizing the fact that though I like to be self-sufficient, though I want to be strong mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and all of the above, though I want those things, the truth of the matter is, is that when sin entered the picture in the Garden of Eden, we are broken. Our spirit is broken. Our lives are broken. And though we may have long periods of time in life where everything goes our way and where it's enjoyable and where we're succeeding and achieving and going through all those types of things, when it all comes to fruition, there are going to be times where we become painfully aware of our brokenness. We are broken. When I recognize, Lord, I need you, why do I need you? I need you because I'm broken. And, I'm, and I, when I'm talking about this state of blessed are they that mourn, it's blessed are they who are aware of their brokenness. Why? Because when I become aware that I'm broken, that I become willing for God to fix me. Then we looked next at blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now what does that mean? Meekness simply is what this is bringing to is a state of submission. And all these, you'll see these things build one upon another. And these uh, first several of, uh, of the Beatitudes, the, the first four, in fact, give us the keys to God's heart. This is, what is it about my attitude, my spirit, that opens the heart of God to me? Now, listen, I'm not saying this morning that God doesn't have a heart for create those he's created. He clearly does. That's why Jesus came. But what's going to bridge the gap? What's going to help me get something and be something in Christ that most people miss, that most people never come to understand? And it's the idea of me, of, of being broken and seeing a need and opening God's heart to me and my heart to God. And that comes to, to meekness, which is submission. In other words, I'm willing to submit my will to his as Jesus did. Jesus, by his own example, said, I've come to do my father's will. It's not about my will. It's not about my desires. It's about, it's about uh, am I doing the will of God for my life? Most Christians live their life wanting to add God to their life and wanting God to help them do what they want to do. That's not the genuine, true Christian life. The real Christian life is when I come to God and say, God, you created me. You've saved my soul. What is it, Father, that you would have me to do? And let me get busy doing it. 
It's about satisfying the will of God for my life and the purpose for which God created me. And by the way, God created you for a purpose. God has a specific individual will for you. The, the, the Christ in our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, is not just for the masses, it's for you individually. Uh, the relationship that we have with Jesus has to be a personal relationship with each and every one of us. Yeah, we can come to church and we can kind of ride on the coattails of other Christians and, and, and kind of hide around and hint around and experience Jesus on some level, but that's not really what he wants for you. What he wants is a deep, personal, meaningful relationship between you and your Savior. That's what he's died to provide for us. And so to be meek is to be submitted. So notice the progression. I see that I have a need for God. Because I understand that I need God, and I understand why I need God, that breaks my spirit. That, that creates in me a willingness then to reach out for him, to yearn for him. Then what happens? If I'm really serious about my Christian life and growth, then I'm going to submit my will to his. I'm going to surrender my will to his. And then that brings us now to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? For they shall be filled. What are we filled with? What are we consumed by? What are we pursuant of? Who is, what is it that we long for? And he says, notice here. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness righteousness. Now what is that? Righteousness is simply a very, this is a very, very simple definition, is to be in a right standing with God. In other words, it's to be made acceptable to God. If, I'm, if I stand righteous before God, then I am acceptable to God. God doesn't look at me and see unrighteousness. You're sinful. You're contaminated. We stand before God in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Blessed are they who long for, who yearn for that righteousness, the innocent, holy, just Lord Jesus as we come before him to, to be right with God. Romans chapter 4 and verses 5 through 8 describe it this way. And I'm going to kind of try to build this just a little bit so we understand the concept here. Romans chapter number 4 and verses 5 through 8. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now notice we're ungodly, but our faith brings us to righteousness. It's not that I become righteous. It's that my faith gives me access to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as David, verse 6, also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. In other words, it's not something that we do to get this righteousness. To impute means basically to just to credit to your account. The righteousness of Christ is credited to the account of the person who puts their faith in him. Not by our works but as an expression of our faith. We put our faith in Christ, and because we express that faith, the gift of God is the righteousness of Christ being given to us who are unrighteous. We are not worthy this morning. There's not anything that we can do to become worthy. There's not anything that we can do to earn righteousness that's going to bring us back into fellowship with God. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I do, Pastor? Put your faith and trust in Him. When I put my faith in Him... God imputes the righteousness of Christ to me. 
And so as he looks here again, uh, as we uh, continue, verse 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. In other words, once I realize my need, I'm broken, and I uh, am mournful or sorry for my sin, and I recognize that I have a need, and I come to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek his forgiveness for my sin, then God takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it to me. In other words, my sin was on my account. But when I put my faith in Christ, God took my sin and laid it on him and put the righteousness of him and put it on me. And I come to a place where I understand that God is working in my heart because I express faith in him. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, in uh, verse number 30, he put it this way uh, when he said, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who, God, uh, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, our redemption is in the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to our account. Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, in verse number 6, he put it this way, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby, our, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Our righteousness isn't about us being a good cookie. Our righteousness is about the goodness of Christ being put on our account while he took our wickedness and bore it on the cross himself. We understand this morning that we are righteous and we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what am I saying here? I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for the character and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that the, the corrupt, wicked man that I am would be put aside and made new by a Savior who gave himself for me. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So what are we talking about here? The word thirst means simply to have a vehement desire for something. Now we, we are a very, uh, the, the most modern country in the world. We are the richest country in the world by far. Which means, and I'm guilty of liking my creature comforts. I, I especially in the summertime love my air conditioning. Above all else, I think I love my air conditioning. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard for us to really appreciate what the scripture's saying here because we're so blessed. And because as a society, we have it easy. The country that we live in now and the country that we grew up in, especially if you're even my age and younger, is very different from the world that our grandparents and great-grandparents grew up in. If you uh, are old enough to remember uh, to remember coming through uh, as a child, World War II and, uh, and in those eras, but whenever things began to change and our country began to really flourish, but coming out of the depression in those times, uh, you understand more hardship. Do you understand people that are hungry and starving to death get to a place where their bellies actually swell? That their, that their limbs look very frail and, uh, and skeletal, but their abdomen actually swells and they have endure great pain? That someone that truly is thirsty in this manner is someone who becomes 
uh, their lips become chafed and their tongue begins to swell in their mouth because it's so dry and they become so dehydrated that they become uh, to, they begin to hallucinate and to become delusional uh, as it gets to be in an extreme state of thirst. The, what we're talking about here is not thirst in the sense of, uh, you know, I am a little thirsty, I'd like a drink. This is not the idea of, hey, I'm thirsty, I'm going to get up and walk to the kitchen and grab a bottle of water. Or I'm going to go to the refrigerator and grab, uh, grab a Coke or grab some tea or something like that. This is, I'm thirsting. I'm, I'm affected. I'm in pain. I'm sorely lacking to the point that it becomes noticeable in the way that I think and communicate and act. You understand what I'm trying to say this morning? This is not just a casual, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This, this is stating actually that I am at a place where I am genuinely thirsty and hungered. Most of us don't know what it's like to go hungry. I grew up fairly poor. I remember I was rehearsing with my stepfather while my mom was in the hospital. And I was there helping. Uh, and, and, you know, we were just kind of reliving uh, those early years whenever God brought him into our family and he trusted the Lord as a savior. And, uh, and at, at the point that we uh, moved to the Chicago area and they, they literally were paying 17% interest on their house. Uh, if you can imagine that, we may be able to imagine it soon, uh, but uh, the way things are going, but, uh, but it was 17% interest. And how did they even survive? Uh, and he was working as a janitor in a large church there. And uh, we were able to go to the school as part of his salary. And that was a blessing. Uh, but those were difficult years. Uh, those, were, those were days when, uh, when lunch at school consisted of uh, two pieces of bread with a little miracle whip. And a piece of ham or turkey that was so thin in those days it was three packages for a dollar. That was so thin that you could see through it. And a piece of cheese. And maybe on good days... Uh, some some really nasty chips from Aldi. I know some of you like to shop at Aldi. I got over that, uh, and so uh, and so. I mean, I like the prices, but uh, it's just there are just some things. Our suppers consisted of for for several years either chicken and dumplings or macaroni and cheese with maybe some hot dogs or some kind of uh, bologna or something like that mixed in just to give it some, uh, some variety to it uh, because it was cheap. You could buy four cans of biscuits for a dollar and the leftover chicken from Sunday lunch, that was the day that we got like Sunday we got uh, you know, generally we had some kind of baked or fried chicken on Sundays and then whatever was left over the back or, uh, or the, my, my mom was teaching my, one of my daughters how to, uh, how to actually dress an entire chicken. Uh, and so, and, and she like fried up the back and my, my daughter was like, Ooh, the back, what is that? And so, uh, so that's, that's good soup meat right there. Uh, and so it's just a different world in which we live. And, and honestly, the, that was difficult. I've gotten to the point where I can, I eat cheese macaroni. My stepfather still can't eat it to this day. He still can't eat chicken and dumplings. I've gotten to the point where I can eat it a couple of times a year and actually enjoy it. But other than that, I'm done. Uh, and just that was life. And so it was, a, it was, there were difficult years. But compared to what my grandparents had coming up, we were living in abundance. And compared to that, the way that we, most of us live now, they could have never even dreamt 
of, of living with what we take for granted. And why? Because, I mean, times have changed. Our country's been blessed. We're fortunate to live uh, in a time where, uh, where we, we generally have abundance. Uh, and so we're, we're here, so it's hard for us to understand what it really means to be hungry. I mean, even in those days, I, I may not have had the best lunch. I certainly didn't have the best lunch at school. We lived with a bunch of rich kids. Uh, but, but, uh, but I wasn't hungry. I mean, I might get hungry by the time lunch or supper rolled around, but, but I didn't go days without a meal. I may not have been the best of meals, but it was a meal. And how long has it been, if you look around, that you've, is it, how, many, how many of us could say that we've gone two or three days without a meal? But there have been times when that's been common. We don't, we don't understand truly what the Bible's communicating to us because we have it so good. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Am I casually hungry for God? Or am I at a point of starvation for God? Am I, oh, it'd be nice to have a little bit of God. Just a little drink of Jesus. Or is my tongue swelling because I'm so desperate? Am I desperate for my Savior? Am I desperate for a relationship with Him? Am I desperate for God to be working in my heart? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It speaks to yearning, to be strained, pained, distressed, to be suffering for to long for, to feel an earnest desire for, and literally to have a desire or an inclination, an inclination uh, that stretches toward the object or end. In other words, I become, in a sense, obsessed with obtaining. How badly do I truly want to walk with Jesus? How badly do I truly want to know him? Three thoughts about this this morning I think he's trying to communicate here to help us understand. Number one, I would say that I need to have a desire for righteousness. I need the righteousness of Christ because I have no capacity to be righteous on my own without him. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. Our yearning for righteousness is our desiring Christ himself. Can you say this morning, I have a desire for Jesus Christ. I desire him. I want to know him. I want to know more about him. I don't want to just know about him, but I want to be a close, personal friend. I want to walk with him. I want to know him. So, Pastor, I think I do. How do I answer that question? Just, just a couple of thoughts here. Number one. A real desire consumes my thoughts. If I really desire something, it consumes my thinking. I can't get it out of my mind. When I'm really wanting something, I, 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 I think it through. Thanksgiving's just around the corner and we've already kind of been making preparations and we typically start buying stuff a little at a time so it's not such a big burden whenever the week rolls around it. Uh, and so we, we uh, a couple weeks ago before we went out of town, got our turkey, put it in the freezer. And I'm, I'm like digging through the turkey thing to find the biggest one I can find. If I can find one, if I could find a 30-pounder, I'd buy it. My wife would kill me, but I would. 
Uh, and so, but typically we, we have a lot of people at our house on Thanksgiving day and we'll have, uh, you know, a 22 to 24 pound turkey and then some, uh, a ham and then all of the other stuff that we fix with it to make sure that there's enough. Because not just that everybody expects there to be enough for the day, everybody wants there to be enough for the weekend, the, the, the leftovers. It's about the only time of the year that we really look forward to leftovers. And so uh, we, uh, we got to fix it up and get it all ready. And I mean, from the, from the time that I bought that thing and put it in the freezer, I've been thinking about it. I mean, it's just there. And I, and I you know, I just, if I go to the freezer, I'll, I'll stand there and look at that thing for just a minute and just kind of think about Thanksgiving. My wife generally gets up and she'll, she'll, she'll season it up on the day before. We'll do most of our baking on Wednesday before and all the preparations are done and we, everybody's got their different things that they, that they contribute and make. And uh, I generally make the cornbread and then I make a cake and then I make, she makes the crust and I make pie fillings at the same time that she's rolling the crust out and she seasons the turkey. And then at three o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving morning, we get up because she can't lift it to get it in the oven. Uh, and so she, she wakes me up to get up and put it, she comes along for moral support, you know, so, uh, and we put that thing in the oven. So when we, generally when I wake up in the morning, the smell of a supper meal is not really something, I like bacon and sausage, that kind of smell, except on Thanksgiving. The smell of that turkey at six o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving morning is a glorious smell. <laughs> And I'm looking forward to it, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm salivating. I mean, already, right now, when, I, when we got home yesterday or Friday, we got home, we got it through the rain, and got here to unload the truck just before the rain caught up and got here. Uh, and so I, I brought all the stuff in the house, I went to the freezer, and I visited the turkey. Uh, and so uh, I just, I, I wanted to see what this is going to be like. I wanted to think about it. It's in my mind. It's already, it's already, I can almost smell it. It's Pastor, it's almost noon, you're killing me. I can't get it out of my mind. And that's a silly thing. What about important things? What about things that really matter? Things that keep you up at night. Sometimes they're good things, sometimes they're bad things. Some point within the next week, probably, we'll have our sixth grandchild will be born. And so I might be home for that. I might not be, uh, depending on how things go with my stepfather in Tennessee this week. But we think about that. Go to bed at night thinking about how's the daughter-in-law doing? And how's the baby going to be? And what's the gender? They didn't want to find out the gender this time. And uh, I, I don't understand that. But that, that, that's, uh, they decided to not find out until it's born. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's... it's Something that you think about captivates your mind whenever someone's really sick in your family that you love dearly and you're concerned about whether they're going to survive or get better. Then, then you, you, you think about it, dominates your thought. You, you can't get away from it everywhere you go. You, you can separate for a minute and function and do your job, but whenever there's a break or even sometimes it's hard to concentrate because your mind just goes back to that thing. Why? Because it's your desire. I wonder how long it's been since we could say that my longing for the Lord Jesus Christ and a stronger, deeper relationship with him kept me up last night. How long since I wanted to walk with him so desperately that it got me up this morning before the alarm clock even went off, before I got away and was doing something, did my mind come back to him? Am I, am I just working him into my busy schedule on Sunday or 
do I long for him? Am I hungering and thirsting, thirsting after him? Why? Because desires consume my thoughts. Not only though do desires consume our thoughts, but desires consume then our actions. If I want it bad enough, I do something about it. If I, if I want to prepare for it, I put in the effort. It changes my schedule. It, it changes my agenda. I talked sometimes a couple years ago, or about a year and a half ago, my youngest son and I hiked the Grand Canyon in a day. And so we got to Bright Day, we want to do it again. But all the guys, so my both sons, both sons-in-law, and even my daughter Sarah is talking about trying to do it. So by January, the, the distance of walk is going to increase dramatically. The amount of miles that I walk or jog in the course of a week is going to dramatically increase for about three to four months before. I'm going to start looking for stairs to climb and start to prepare. Why? Because I know what it takes and I know the preparation it has to go into it. The thing is, it's something that we really want to do. So if we really want to do it, it's going to affect our schedule. It's going to affect our daily schedule. It's going to affect our preparation. Do I want Jesus bad enough that I'm willing for it to alter my schedule? See, if you really want a relationship with Christ, you've got to spend some time with him every day. You, you, can't just, you can't just say, you know, hey, Lord, I'm here. Would you show up? Are you seeking him? Has it altered? Have you made time for him? Have you set aside some space? I'm not talking about on Sunday. I'm talking about every day. See, a real relationship is not something that, uh, that is, uh, is a matter of convenience. It's a matter of necessity. Imagine, uh, you know, my wife and I have been married 33 years, and uh, I can't imagine going week after week after week after week after week only talking to her once a week for an hour and a half, or only seeing her once a week for an hour, uh, hour or so. I want to spend time with her. I want to be with her. I want to know what's going on in her life and what she's thinking and how she's feeling and uh, how she's handling different things that come up in life. A desire shapes my actions. How does my desire for Christ shape my actions in life, my daily routines? Number two this morning. Not only would a desire for Christ or yearning and longing for righteousness create a desire for righteousness, but it then would create, cause in me a seeking after righteousness. We'll, we'll cover this again in, uh, in several weeks when we get to it in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, still part of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All the, the necessities of life will be added to you when, when we seek him. Our seeking is the next step toward obtaining. I have to desire. Once I desire, then I begin to seek after and so it's a seeking after. I want to seek him in three basic ways. And these aren't the only ways, but these are the three primary ways that most of us would resonate with, have opportunity to seek Christ. I'm going to give you these just quickly, and then I'm going to kind of illustrate this a little bit, and then we'll move on to our final point. I need to be seeking him in his word. You want to find Jesus? Go to the word of God. It is Jesus in print. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1 and verse 1. He identifies for us and says, I am the word. You want to know me? I'm right here. You can find him in every book of the Bible. 
whether he's mentioned by name or not, the character, the person of Jesus Christ is in every book from Genesis to Revelation. He reveals himself to us. You want to know who Jesus is? You know what, what's important to him? You want to know what matters to him? You want to know what his expectations for us are? You want to know how to find forgiveness of sin and eternal life? You want to know how to be blessed and to have prayer answered? Go to the book. Seek him in his word. Secondly, I would say seek him in his house. Here we are. We're here because we're seeking the Lord. We're here to worship him. But we're seeking him. We're seeking a real relationship with him. We're seeking him on a deeper level. Seek him in his house. Seek him in prayer. Have you talked to him? And I don't mean just reading off a laundry list of desires. I mean, have you talked to him? Have you had a real conversation with Jesus? One which he was given an opportunity to say something back. Is the Lord going to speak to me in an audible voice? Nobody will speak to you through his word. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you in your heart. And if you understand where am I going to find him, I'm seeking for righteousness. Seeking, and it basically it's this. Why his word? Why at church? Why in prayer? Because I want to seek him in places that I know he's going to be. Now, I, re- I get it. God's everywhere. He's everywhere all the time. I understand. But, but understand the point here. When, <clears throat> when Jacob would travel, when Abraham would travel in early Genesis, and there were times that they would come back to God, you know where they came? They came back to places where they had met God before. You go through and you, when you read through Genesis and read through and see how many times they came back to Bethel. They came back to a place where they had met God before. If I met God there once, then I expect to meet him there again. Why? That's God's place. I want to seek him where he's going to be. My, my wife is a tremendous cook. She's not an athlete. Now, she'll walk. She'll even try to jog a little bit here and there, but she doesn't enjoy it. She just, that's not, I get to a point where I actually enjoy it. She'll never, ever in her lifetime get to a point where she enjoys it. She's not an athlete. If I can't find her, I'm not going to go look for her at the gym. And I'm not going to look for her at the park unless it's at the playground with the, little, with the grandchildren. I'm going to go someplace where she's likely to be. Whenever we were in college and I noticed her and, and we were in um, the, the college that we went to had at that time especially had massive bus ministry. I mean, they brought literally brought 10,000 people a week on buses to church over four different Sunday schools. You had A, B, C, D, and E Sunday school. Uh, and, you know, it was a shift. You had one come in, this, this group went to Sunday school, and whenever they went to church, then the next group came in for Sunday school, and they went home, and the ones that were Sunday school went to church, and the next group came in, and it was, a, it was a whole day. of It was a big operation. And they had at the college, and at the time there were over 2,000 students there, uh, at the college, they were divided into divisions, and the city of Chicago was divided into certain areas, and your division covered this area, and our division uh, was in this area. So every Saturday morning at 6 o'clock, we had a preaching and prayer meeting before we went to the city and went visiting for hours, and then got up and, and killed ourselves all day on Sunday, literally from about 4 in the morning until midnight or 1 o'clock the next morning, uh, if, if, for the guys that had to go get buses, and they rented them. It was all divided into this area, and it was very organized, and it was all about just go and get and bring. 
So I noticed her in the bus meeting. She worked in the dining hall. That was her student job. She worked in the dining hall. And whenever, a lot of times she would work behind serving and prepping and cutting salad and different things like that. But her primary job was ice stations. Now, they didn't have separate uh, ice machines at every station around the, the dining hall. They had to be filled manually. So she had a cart, and she would go to the kitchen to the big ice machine, and she'd fill the cart up with ice, and then she would walk around. The, it was like an octagon-shaped building, and she'd walk around the edge because it, it had a kind of a ledge up, and then it would step down into the table seating area. And, it would, and she'd have to go around to all these stations and scoop the ice out, and I'm eating one day and I look up and I see her go by with her little ice cart and that was it. I was, I was done. I mean, that was, I, I mean, that, that was from that day, uh, she was the one for me. You know what that did? Caused me to pursue. It caused me to alter my schedule. Why? Because I saw someone that I wanted to get to know. I, I saw someone that I and pretty quickly realized I wanted to marry. Changed everything. I couldn't sleep at night thinking about how am I going to meet this girl? I, I, I changed where is she going to be tomorrow? Is she working breakfast? I wasn't going to get up and go to breakfast, but if she was working breakfast, I was going to go to breakfast. We hadn't even really met Whenever we uh, finally had our first date, it was in November of 1985. Uh, and so we finally had our first date. I was walking down the hallway and her friend uh, Wanda pushed her, pushed her and I happened to be coming around the corner. I say that she had her pusher just to give her a hard time. But the truth is, they were looking aboard and they were just goofing off and her friend pushed her right out in front. I'm coming down the hall, almost ran over. So we met and then uh, we had a date and then, uh, and then there was a big activity every year at Christmas time. Uh, and the and Michigan Avenue and State Street in downtown Chicago, uh, they decorate the storefronts up just beautifully with all kinds of Christmas displays. And then uh, out around what's now Millennial Park, it wasn't that then, but there's food trucks and hot chocolate carts and all kinds of stuff there. And people will come there and just walk down the storefront. Some will shop, but most people just want to go see the storefronts and the, and the elaborate decorations. And there was a big college activity. And so you had to sign up and they bust everybody up there. And then uh, you, you could go walk around downtown and uh, go get your hot chocolate. And then you had your assigned time. Well, I asked her to that, but she already had agreed before she met me to go to that with some other guy. Okay, so that was a problem for me. Uh, and so uh, th this, is, this is what I did. I found the prettiest girl that I could find to go with me. And I made sure that we sat right in front of my wife and her date on the bus. And I made sure that we were in the, in the back of the group that was going that she was in the front of. So she had to watch me have a great time with this girl the whole night. Shame on me, but who got the girl? <laughs> that was the last time she went on a date with somebody else. <laughs> and four years later, we were married. I'm just saying, when you desire something, it affects your behavior. It affects your avenue of pursuit. It affects the way that you go about your life. It affects the way that you think. It dominates your mindset. And I'm just saying this morning, if I'm going to seek after the righteousness of Christ, 
then I have to go to his word and I need to come to him in his house and I need to go to him in prayer and I need to seek him where he's going to be. I didn't go look for her down by the lake or uh, out at, at some other avenue of campus. I knew where she was going to be. She was either going to be in her bus area or she was going to be working in the dining hall. I hung out at the dining hall even whenever there wasn't any food. Why? Is that where she was going to be? Do you hang out where Jesus is? Now, I'm glad he comes to us wherever we go. And if the Holy Spirit's in your heart, he's with you everywhere that you go. But do I go to him where he's communicated that this is where he speaks to me and where he longs to meet with us? Am I seeking for righteousness? See, I have the desire for righteousness, and then I seek righteousness, and then finally I pursue righteousness. Am I pursuing the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Am I in pursuit of him? 1 Timothy chapter number 6 and verse number 11. First, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Paul communicates to young Timothy, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. See, we pursue with our brothers and sisters in Christ. A pursuit of righteousness. In other words, I'm acting out or I'm following with the view of overtaking or obtaining I'm a, I'm a very competitive person by nature. And if there's no one for me to compete with, I compete with myself. Uh, and so if, I, if I, uh, I go through periods of time through the year where I'm really consistent with some jogging and exercise and walking, and I go through other times where it's more of a struggle. Uh, and so I try to be, I'm not going to make my goal this year, but I'm at 600 miles so far for this year. I have either walked or jogged. Uh, and I track it real diligently, and I, I, a couple days a week, I generally will push the time real hard and I try to make improvement. I always want to be getting better. Uh, and so sometimes my wife, she gets scared, especially there was an incident at Jenkins Park this year, so she hasn't been back to walk there since that. Um, and she probably wouldn't go unless I was there. But even in our neighborhood, she's terrified of dogs. So we do, a lot of times, we go around our neighborhood. If I do every street in my subdivision, it's a little over five miles. And... Uh, and so, and that's, that's typically my normal pace, or my distance, my normal distance is five miles. And so she'll do three or four. And so I'll either start before her, and then she'll come out, and I'll be behind. Like, I have a certain course, and uh, if I get, so I'll tell her, okay, at this time, I'm going to be back by the house. So if you want to get started, sometimes she'll start a little earlier, and she'll get, and I know what her, her trek is, and, uh, and I'll catch her, and, I'll, and she'll be way ahead, sort of. Uh, and so uh, she'll, but she's in the distance. Well, in my mind, without even thinking about it, I got to catch up. I can't, I, I just, that's something about the way I'm wired. I just can't stand to be like lagging back there. I'm going to push until I get caught up. Uh, and so it's just, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm, I'm pursuing with the idea of overtaking. So if you watch long distance runners in competition, they know their abilities. They know whether they need to start fast or they need to hold some in reserve. Typically, in a long race, you'd hold some in reserve. And they'll, they'll know, okay, if this many laps, at this lap, I've got to start catching up. I've got to start making up time. 
They don't typically in a long distance race, you don't want to be the pace setter because you, you run out of energy at the end. Uh, but you'll see them. You'll see somebody that's really good and they'll be on that, they'll get to that last lap or two laps or lap and a half and all of a sudden they'll go from being in the middle of the pack to start <coughs> surging past. But that other guy's way out front and then you come to that last lap and they get into that last turn and they just kick it into a whole nother gear and they'll just zoom right past that guy that's been in the lead for the whole race. Why? Because they are pursuing with the idea of overtaking. We talk about pursuing a relationship with Christ, hungering and thirsting with righteousness. We're talking about pursuing with the idea of obtaining him. I'm going to pay any price. I'm going to go any distance. I'm going to be willing to do whatever's necessary until I have him. And then I'm going to maintain that. What makes that possible, Pastor? Well, three thoughts about this and we'll be done this morning. First of all, we pursue what's important to us. I've never had that kind of relationship with Christ. I don't know. Listen, if it's important to you, you'll put in the effort. If it's important enough, you'll work any amount of overtime. If it's important enough, you'll make any sacrifice. If it's important enough, you'll drive any distance. If it's important enough, the question is not whether Jesus can be obtained. The question is, as his child, do I want him badly enough to pay the price that's necessary to obtain him? Am I willing to be serious about my walk with God? We pursue what's important. Secondly, we pursue what's valuable. Is Jesus valuable enough to me that I'm willing to make sacrifices in my life to obtain him? Am I willing to please him? We pursue what is valuable. How valuable to you is Jesus? Oh, pastor, he's everything to me. Does your, do the actions of your life reflect that? See, it's not about what we think, it's about what we do. There's this perfect world that I live in in my head and then there's a reality of what my life actually is. Yeah, I, I want that, but I don't want it bad enough to change my life habits to make it possible. And what Jesus is communicating here is he's saying, listen, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you want to be filled this morning? How valuable is he to you? How willing are you to pursue him? What sacrifices are you willing to make? We pursue what we believe will satisfy us. What am I pursuing? What I think is going to bring some peace and satisfaction to my heart and to my life. See, we're kind of in this time of the year where the days are shorter now after the time change and it's, it's less convenient. Sunday night's not as convenient. Wednesday night's not as convenient. How willing am I to inconvenience myself to have all that God has for me? If I'm not willing, I'm grateful that Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced to provide salvation for us. Do you not realize the inconvenience it was for him to leave the throne of heaven to put on human flesh? How inconvenient it was for him to walk amongst us. 
How inconvenient it was for him to sleep under the stars at night without even a roof over his head on many occasions. How inconvenient it was for him to be betrayed. How inconvenient it was for him to be beaten and whipped and crucified. How inconvenient it was to be tempted of Satan on a mountain. I'm glad Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced. So inconvenient to come back on Sunday night. Is it inconvenient to come back on Wednesday? Is it inconvenient? The weather's getting colder. I've got to go through more hassle, put on more clothes, or uh, make more preparation. Is it inconvenient to, maybe a little, but am I not willing to be inconvenienced to have all the blessing and power of God in my life that God wants me to have? See, I can convince myself intellectually that I have great heart, desire, love for God. But the reality is made manifest in my life, in my daily activities, in my daily routines, in my daily thought process. When's the last time, Christian, that you laid awake at night longing for God? When's the last time that you got up excited to get into the Word of God and in prayer and spend time with Him before you saw another soul? How long has it been since you were willing to say, you know what, uh, man, I'm really tired today, but I just can't wait to get to spend some time with God and His people? Do I long for him? We pursue what will satisfy us. Question. Am I pursuing that which satisfies my spiritual man or the carnal man that's within me? See, everyone in here this morning, from the pastor all the way down to the newest person, is pursuing something. I'm either pursuing that which will satisfy my flesh or I'm pursuing that which will satisfy my spirit. What are you pursuing this morning? Whom are you pursuing this morning? Listen, that question is not for me to answer. That's between you and the Lord. I'm just making the argument this morning that Jesus makes when he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I want to be filled with God, Pastor. Really, where will you be tonight? I want to be filled with God. Where will you be on Wednesday? I want to be filled with God. Will you spend any time praying and reading your Bible tomorrow? Will you pursue him? Will you seek after him? Will you long for him? Will you sacrifice for him? Will you be inconvenienced for the gospel's sake? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 again tells us to desire, to seek, and to pursue righteousness is to align our desires and activities with those of Christ, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And if I really desire him, my life will come into alignment with his person, his values, his agenda, his will. Why? Because it's not about my will, it's about his. Remember, I had to be submitted to his will. I'm submitted to his will because I'm broken. I realize I need him. I need him to fix me. I realize that because I understand I have a need for God. And when I see my need for God and realize the brokenness of my life and I submit my will to his and I begin to long and yearn for him, he will fill me. Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 34 that my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Are we willing to? To find satisfaction in life doing the will of God and not pursuing our own agenda. We align our heart and desires with his because being like him is our goal. He's in the distance. 
We're chasing after him. We're trying to track him down. Am I willing to sweat a little more? Am I willing to put forth a little more energy? Am I willing to stay focused? Am I willing to push myself to obtain him? Where are we this morning? Can I say this morning that I'm truly hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Or do I just want a little gospel snack on Sunday morning? Do I just want a little sip of Jesus on a hot day? Or do I want to really obtain the blessing and the power of heaven to live a life that shines in a dark world that God can use for his honor and glory? No one can answer that question for you, but you. No one can make the sacrifices necessary for you, but you. No one can have a relationship with Christ like that for you, but you. Will you be filled? Yes, you will. Will you be filled with that which satisfies the carnal you? Or will you be filled with that which satisfies Christ in you?